Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is our guest. Tom, of course, has been with us a number of times. He's the director of public policy polling, which is a firm that is located, ironically, next door to us, uh, our studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, but does polling and uh, 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 all sorts of research all across the country. And uh, it has quite a great reputation for being accurate and uh, doing good work. So, uh, Tom, welcome back to the program. Delighted to be with you. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to talk a lot about, uh, of course, the things that uh, are on people's minds. And you did a survey about a week ago now. Uh, and I guess it's kind of a changing situation. Even a poll a week, a week old is, is probably a little bit out of date already. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what people are thinking. And I noticed that uh, one of the first questions that you asked was, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Donald Trump? Uh, so what did you find? We found that 45% of voters in North Carolina like him, 49% don't. So he has a minus four net favorability rating. And that's sort of the inverse of what he had in 2016. He won the state in 2016 by four points. Now he's at minus four. And what that really speaks to, uh, the difference not being that great, is that almost everybody still feels the same way about Trump that they did uh, four years ago. Among people who voted for Trump last time around, 90% have a favorable opinion of him. Among people who voted for Clinton last time around, 93% have an unfavorable opinion of him. So very few people have changed their minds over the last four years, but the small handful of people who have changed their minds have moved from liking Trump to not liking Trump, and that's why we now find him underwater. So now let me ask you this. Did you break it out by registered Republicans and registered Democrats and registered unaffiliates? We did. Uh, and it comes out pretty much the way that you would expect. Uh, Trump has a 90% favorability with Republicans. He has only a 14% favorability with Democrats. And most of that 14% of Democrats who like Trump are sort of ancestrally registered Democrats in the eastern part of the state or in the mountains who don't usually actually vote Democratic for anything anymore, but they might have registered that way in 1980 when the political alignments in the country were kind of different. But the key thing on that party breakdown is that with independents, only 37% have a favorable opinion of Trump, 54% unfavorable. And those are the folks who are really going to determine what ends up happening in North Carolina this fall. So it would appear that most of those uh, in that uh, first uh, breakdown, the 6%, probably most of those are probably registered on affiliates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now you did the same type of questioning on uh, the uh, Democratic nominee or the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. And what did you find there? We found that 40% of voters have a favorable opinion of him, 48% unfavorable. And what makes his numbers negative is that among Democrats, only 73% say they have a favorable opinion of him, 16% unfavorable. And the dynamic that's going on there is that a lot of people who voted for somebody else in the primary, people who voted maybe for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, something like that, some of those folks still don't like Biden. Uh, but what's interesting is that a lot of people who don't like Biden are still planning to vote for him. 
uh, and this is something that's sort of an important dynamic in this year's election, is that in 2016, there were a lot of voters who disliked both Trump and Clinton. But if you disliked both Trump and Clinton, you generally voted for Trump. And that was sort of a key uh, part of his victory. This time around, there's a fair number of voters who dislike both Trump and Biden, but this time the voters who dislike both Trump and Biden are voting for Biden by a pretty substantial margin. That's a big part of why Biden's ahead. And this really sort of speaks to a broader trend in American politics, which is that there's a certain segment of the country that just dislikes everyone, and they tend to vote for whoever is out of power hoping that that might change something. And it usually doesn't change something. And then two years later, four years later, they go back to voting for the other party. But that dynamic this year is to both Democrats and Joe Biden's benefit. Now, one of the things that uh, some of the advisors to President Trump are saying, especially on nationwide polls, is they're saying that uh, a number of uh, people who are Trump supporters will not participate in surveys. Did you find that to be the case? or? Uh, the number of people who turned you down were, I guess you were unable to find out where they stood. But uh, is there any indication that that's going on? Not really. This poll, uh, we asked people whether they voted for Trump or Clinton in uh, 2016. And in this poll, 47% voted for Trump, 43% voted for Clinton. And that four point advantage for Trump over Clinton is what he won the state by. So we're not really seeing any evidence of Trump people just sort of refusing to take polls. Uh, I, I think that's maybe a little bit of a wishful thinking explanation from his people about why his numbers are so poor. So uh, now this, the, all of these people, of course, that you surveyed were in the state of North Carolina. Have you done any nationwide polling? Or yeah, polling we, did a national, we did a national poll this week and we had – uh, Biden up by nine points on the national poll. Uh, and it sort of makes sense that Biden would be up by nine nationally and up by two in North Carolina, because in 2016, uh, Trump did six points better in North Carolina than he did in the country as a whole. So North Carolina was six points more Republican than the country overall. Right now we're seeing a seven point difference. So it's pretty consistent with about where we'd expect it to be. Compared with other polls that you've done in years past, do you find that there's more or less interest? I guess I'm asking, is there more or less apathy than there was, or is it about the same as, as you've been finding in the past? Interest is actually really off the charts. I think that if COVID wasn't going on, we would absolutely have the biggest turnout for an election we've ever had in American history. And I think we might have the biggest turnout we've had for an election in American history, even with COVID going on. Uh, there were a number of primaries across the country uh, over the course of the month of June, and the turnout was just uh, record-breaking in all those primaries, far more people voting in them than had ever voted in the past, even with the difficulties in voting right now. So uh, interest is very high, and I expect that even with the difficulties with people getting out to vote this year, that uh, we're still going to see a uh, very impressive turnout. So now what do you attribute that to? Uh, and uh, a sort of a follow-up to that is where are people basically getting their information that uh, is causing an increase in their interest? Sure. Uh, I think it really, the what it can be attributed to is I, I think we have the most polarizing president in American history, uh, truly. 
So a certain segment of people just love him in a way that people rarely love a president. So they're very motivated to get out and vote. And there's also a certain segment of voters that hate him in a way that people have never really hated a president before. So they're really uh, fired up to get out and vote too. I don't know, certainly in my lifetime, there's never been a president who people had to think about to the extent that they think about Trump. Every now and then when uh, Barack Obama was president, you might not think about Barack Obama. You might have a day every now and then when George W. Bush was president that you didn't think about George W. Bush. You're lucky if you can go an hour in America in 2020 without having to think about Donald Trump. Uh, And I think that dynamic is what gets people the most interested in this election, maybe that they've ever been. Where they're getting their news, uh, local TV is still number one uh, for that uh, in terms of the most common news source. And then after that, I think that people are uh, more and more getting uh, information from the internet. But uh, I think some people question the amount of money that campaigns and causes spend on advertising on the six o'clock news. It is still the best place to reach people. So uh, if you were to look back four years at this same time, of course, uh, right before both conventions, and of course, uh, at that point in time, I, I can't remember, was Trump by that point in time the favored uh, candidate? He clinched it, yeah. Yeah. So what, what would your numbers have been at that point in time, uh, say four years ago? Yeah, I'm bringing it up. Uh, At this time, four years ago, Donald Trump was up by two points in North Carolina, 43 to 41. So kind of the kind of the inverse of where it is right now. And what about nationally about this? Nationally, Clinton was up by about four. So basically, basically, we sorry, Uh, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, Basically, at this point, uh, four years ago, we had Clinton up four nationally and Trump up two in North Carolina. And the final result was Clinton plus two nationally and Trump plus four in North Carolina. So Trump did two points better than where he was in the polls at this time uh, four years ago. So he'll certainly need a lot more improvement uh, over the course of the next four months from where he is right now than he got over the course of the last four months last time. Of course, that's the popular vote. Now, uh, I guess one of the questions I've got to ask is what about the pivotal of uh, states in the Electoral College? Because, quite frankly, uh, we know that Trump did not carry the popular vote last time. <laughs> yeah, so the four states that are probably most important to the Electoral College are Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Uh, Joe Biden needs to win both Pennsylvania and Michigan and then he just needs one out of Wisconsin and Arizona. And if he can get one of those, he'll win the Electoral College. Right now, he's up by about eight, Biden is, in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And he's up by about six in Wisconsin and Arizona. So he's up in the states that he needs to win the Electoral College. And he's actually up in a decent amount in them. And then uh, Biden's also winning in a number of what I would call icing on the cake states. These aren't ones he needs to win to get to uh, 270. But Uh, He's up in Florida. He's up in North Carolina. He's up in Georgia. uh, And then Texas, Iowa, and Ohio are toss-ups. So right now, we're sort of talking more about whether Biden's going to get 350 electoral votes or 400 electoral votes than whether Biden's going to win or not. But certainly things could tighten up between now and November. We're uh, 
have as our guest uh, Tom Jensen, who's the head of public policy polling, and we're talking about a recent survey he's done. We're going to turn to the state of North Carolina and, and uh, what the picture is with the candidates running from North Carolina right after these messages. You say too. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. Just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Tom Jensen, who's been with us a number of times. Tom is the head of public policy polling, and... Uh, We've invited Tom because he has just completed about uh, about a week ago a recent survey on where people are standing with regards to the upcoming November election. We discussed in the first segment the uh, uh, the national situation, and now we're going to turn to the state of North Carolina. And uh, you, of course, went down the list, and let's just start with the with the gubernatorial race. Uh, and of course, you asked the question: Do you have a favorable or un? favorable opinion of Roy Cooper. And how did that turn out? 48% of voters in the state have a favorable opinion of him, 40% unfavorable. So that's a plus eight net, net favorability rating, which might not sound amazing, but if you compare it to Bev Perdue and uh, Pat McCrory over the course of their times in office, uh, Bev Perdue usually had about a minus 25 to minus 30 favorability rating. Pat McCrory usually had about a minus 10 to a minus 15 favorability rating. So Cooper's running well, well ahead of them. Uh, you know, we're just a very polarized state now. So you're not going to see somebody with a 60 or 70% approval rating. But I think Governor Cooper's holding up about as well as somebody could hold up in this uh, political climate. Now, we, as with the presidential race, because North Carolina has so many registered unaffiliates, uh, uh, how did that turn out with unaffiliates? What is, what is their feeling about Roy Cooper? Well, he's doing pretty well with them. Uh, basically, over time, unaffiliateds used to be seen as a voter block that were helpful to Republicans in North Carolina. And now they're more and more moving towards the Democratic side. So uh, when you match them up with Dan Forrest, Roy Cooper has a 10-point advantage with unaffiliateds, 47-37, and when you just ask Cooper's favorability, the numbers are about identical, 48 favorable, 39 unfavorable. 
And it's worth noting also that Joe Biden's up by nine points with unaffiliated. Cal Cunningham's up by three points with unaffiliated. So uh, across the board, unaffiliated are leaning in the Democratic direction this year. So you asked the question, of course, against the uh, candidate who will be running on the Republican slate against Roy Cooper, and that's Dan Forrest. How did that turn out? Cooper has a nine-point lead right now, 50 to 41. We very consistently found Cooper at 49 or 50 percent for re-election. So he's, you know, I think it's not going to end up being a huge blowout, but he has a very clear advantage. Uh, In the first month after the virus hit, there was a WRAL poll, for instance, that had Cooper up by 27 points. I just don't think that's very plausible in North Carolina these days that anybody would win by 27. I think even nine points just about qualifies as a landslide in this state these days when almost everything's decided by one or two points. And of course, the governor uh, won his first election by just about 10,000 votes. So uh, he certainly progressed well from there. Uh, So we've seen a very consistent picture in that race where Cooper's right around 49 or 50, Forrest is right around 40, pretty much poll after poll. Now, you mentioned in the first segment that it would appear that nationally we're going to have a huge turnout. What about North Carolina? Same picture. And I think one thing that we have to be proud of in North Carolina uh, is that it's taken a lot of states forever to get the vote counted uh, in their primaries with more people voting early or more people voting by absentee than they ever had in the past. And the reason it's taken so long is that they're waiting until the election's over to tabulate any of those ballots. So, uh, you know, there was an election in Kentucky and an election in New York where nobody knew what the results were until something like a week and a half after the election happened. But what we do in North Carolina is that as those early votes come in, as those absentee votes come in, we just feed them into the machine as they come in, even if that's a week or two before the election, They don't announce any of the results until election night, but usually at 7.30 on election night when the polls close, we immediately have a million ballots counted from people who voted earlier absentee because we're counting those million ballots before the election instead of waiting like New York and Kentucky are to count that million ballots after the election, have to wait forever. So we're lucky in that regards to have a professional board of elections that I think is equipped to handle some of the changes in how people are voting this year, uh, maybe better than election officials in some other states have been handling that kind of thing. Let's turn to the race for United States Senate. This is one of those few years where we have not only a presidential race, a a race for the governorship, but also a race for one of our two United States Senate races. And and of course, nationally, this is a targeted uh, race as far as the Democrats are concerned. They've certainly targeted uh, incumbent Republican Tom Tillis. What have you found out so far about how he's standing? Well, he's pretty persistently trailing Cal Cunningham for re-election. We found in this poll that Cunningham's up by four points, 44 to 40. Uh, And every poll this year, we've had Cunningham up by somewhere from two to eight points. It sort of moves around within that general vicinity The thing about Tom Tillis is that he wasn't popular even when he got elected to the U.S. Senate. He took office with a 30% approval rating. The reason he got elected in 2014 was that voters didn't like Kay Hagan, they didn't like him, and it was a Republican-leaning political climate. So he got pushed into office because of that Republican-leaning political climate, not because anybody liked him. 
And he hadn't been able to move off of that 30% approval rating the whole time he's been in office. He's been uh, consistently unpopular. And now we're in a fundamentally different kind of political climate than the one he got elected in. Uh, so, you know, because he doesn't have a very strong personal brand and the country and the state as a whole are leaning Democratic this year, that puts Tillis in a lot of trouble. And then the other side of that that I think is important to note is that Cal Cunningham's proven to be a pretty strong candidate. A lot of national people who helped recruit him into the race were annoyed that he had a competitive primary and that he had to work really hard to beat Erica Smith in the primary. But the exposure that he got from putting himself out in front of the voters earlier in the year than he otherwise might have got him a plus 20 net favorability rating coming out of the primary, which really is pretty impressive. So I think that might have actually ended up being a blessing in disguise because it gave him an opportunity to make a first impression on the voters in the state. And for the most part, that proved to be a positive first impression. Now, I noticed that uh, in the results for uh, the, uh, the race for the United States Senate, 16% are not sure who they're voting for. That's a, is that a high number at this point in time or is that about normal? It's a little bit high and I think it speaks to a couple things. Uh, one, and this is something I know we've talked about before, Tom Tillis uh, really just isn't that well-known in the state. And of course, Cal Cunningham as a new candidate isn't that well-known either. So there's a lot of voters who, when we ask them about this Senate race, they're not familiar with either candidate. So that's more likely to put them in the undecided column. And I think that one thing that is a little bit of a positive for Tillis that we've seen in our polls is that a fair number of Republicans say that they're reluctant to support him because they don't like him. But for a lot of those people, the reason they don't like him is because they think he has not been supportive enough of President Trump. And my sense is that in the, at the end of the day, if you love Trump and you don't like Tillis because you think he doesn't love Trump enough, you're still more likely going to end up voting for Tillis than you are to end up voting for a Democrat. Uh, so I would not be surprised to see this race tighten as some of those stubborn Republicans move back into the Tillis column. So that's going to be a race to watch. Do you think it will go right down to the wire, or, or what, what's your best prediction on how that one's going to come out? Well, I think it'll go right down to the wire, and I think it'll also be the Senate seat that determines who has control of the U.S. Senate. Right now, Republicans have a 53-47 advantage in the Senate. They're probably going to pick up a seat in Alabama that Democrats won sort of under fluky circumstances in 2017, so that'll get the Republicans to 54 but then Republicans are going to lose a Senate seat in Colorado, 53. They're going to lose a Senate seat in Arizona, 52. They're probably going to lose a Senate seat in Maine, 51. And then if Democrats are going to win a 50th Senate seat, that probably is North Carolina. And assuming that there's a Democratic president, the Democratic vice president then could break the ties in a positive direction for Democrats in a 50-50 Senate. We are the Senate race most likely to determine that. So that is actually the most important race in North Carolina this year by far. We'll be close for president, but we're not going to determine who wins the presidency because if Biden wins North Carolina, he already won the Electoral College by winning other states by a wider margin. So we'll be close, but we're not important. The Senate race, we're going to be close and we're going to be important. So I guess uh, the, what we can count on is a tremendous amount of money being poured into that race uh, in North Carolina television and broadcast radio and direct mail and all the other forms that uh, people are using to campaign. I guess it'll be a record uh, campaign expenditure. 
Uh, I think in 2014, when Tillis ran the first time, we broke the national record for the most money ever spent on a Senate race. Uh, and we may just go ahead and break our record again this year. And of course, uh, most, most times, uh, this is not always true, but most times the candidate that spends the most money usually ends up winning. Yeah, I, I just wonder about diminishing returns at some point this year when both candidates slash affiliated organizations will probably spend over $50 million on this race. You just wonder at some point what the difference between 50 and 55 is. So uh, how much emphasis will uh, Donald Trump have on the senatorial race? It'll be huge. Uh you know, for the most part, people vote for the same party for both offices. Uh, and we see less and less ticket splitting in North Carolina than we ever did in the past. Uh, it used to be, uh, you know, people would, a lot of people would vote one way for president and they'd vote another way for governor. For instance, in 2004, uh, George W. Bush got reelected by 12 points in North Carolina and Mike Easley got reelected by 12 points too on the same ballot. That dynamic is over. Uh, so I don't think the president race and the Senate race will uh, run more than about two points away from each other. So I think if Trump really ends up losing North Carolina, Tillis is going to go down too. If Trump can somehow get his standing back uh, in good shape in North Carolina, he may bring Tillis along for the ride. But uh, for the most part, uh, this Senate race is not going to come down to Tom Tillis or Cal Cunningham. It's going to come down to how people feel about Trump. They're going to vote for the Senate based on that. They're going to vote for the legislature based on that. They're probably going to vote vote for the soil and water commissioner based on that. Uh, Trump has just become an overwhelming force. Our guess is Tom Tillis. <laughs> is not Tom Tillis, as a matter of fact. <laughs> it's Tom Jensen, as a matter of fact. And uh, we'll be back with more uh, as we discuss the recent poll that public policy polling did about the uh, a week or so ago, and we'll do that right after these messages. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. 
We're back with uh, Tom Jensen, who's the director of public policy polling, and we're discussing a recent poll that uh, his organization just finished in the state of North Carolina. In the first segment, we discussed uh, the uh, presidential and gubernatorial races and how they stand and uh, shape up. And if you missed that, we'll sort of recap that in the final segment. Uh, Now let's turn to uh, the topic of the day, the thing that everybody seems to be uh, really interested in, that is the uh, coronavirus. and you asked the question, how concerned would you say you are about the coronavirus? And 57% said very concerned. 26% said somewhat concerned. So it is certainly the topic of the day. It is. And uh, I think that voters support the governor's most recent decision not to move into phase three, uh, because we've seen concern about the virus really ticking up over the last few weeks. Uh, 60% of voters in the state think that it's getting worse, only 10% think it's getting better, and 22% say it stayed about the same. Uh, And we've been asking regularly a question, do you think that the worst is over with the virus, or do you think the worst is yet to come? 47% of voters think the worst is yet to come, only 30% think we've already been through the worst. Uh, So I think that voters are very cautious about the approach to reopening the state, given the sort of trajectory that the numbers have been on uh, throughout June. I thought one of the interesting questions you ask is, what is your largest concern with the coronavirus, that you or a family member will get the virus, that the disruption is it's causing to daily life or the economic impact? And how did that come out? Yeah, 45% of voters said that their biggest concern with the virus is the health impact, that they or somebody in their family will get it, only 34% said that their biggest concern is the economic impact. And we've pretty consistently seen that voters are more worried about the virus from a health standpoint than from an economic standpoint. Uh, That's something we've really seen regularly over the last three months. Uh, And I think that's a big part of why voters are being patient for the most part about reopening the state. Uh, Is that they don't want to get sick. They don't want their family to get sick and they may hate the impact that the virus is having on businesses and the general economy of the state, but that doesn't rise to the level of concern that they have about somebody getting sick. So now uh, another question that you asked that I thought was interesting is uh, as restrictions are lifted, how important is it that people wear face coverings or masks when they're shopping or in public settings indoors? And you asked very important, somewhat important or not that important the results I'm looking at uh, don't really jive with what I'm seeing on the streets uh, (laughs) because uh, uh, essentially 79% either said somewhat important or very important. And I don't see that support. What, uh, what do you attribute that to? Maybe I'm just seeing the wrong people. Maybe that's what we attribute it to. (laughs) Uh, I think that there are probably a fair number of voters who uh, say that masks are important but then don't wear them themselves. So uh, you certainly might be onto a dynamic there. One thing that I thought was interesting about this is that there's not really that much of a partisan divide. Uh, 96% of Clinton voters said that it's important to wear a mask, but so did 61% of Trump voters. Sometimes from watching the news, you would think that nobody who supports Trump thinks you should wear a mask. And uh, what we're seeing is that actually most people who support Trump think that you should wear a mask. But uh, definitely, I think to the extent that people are doing the mask wearing, 
Uh, I think it's much more often when they're inside in stores and that kind of thing, and they're not doing it as much uh, outside. It also varies a lot in different parts of the state. You know, if you go into a store in Chapel Hill, 100% of people are wearing a mask. But then if you're out into a more rural part of the state, you do see uh, a much lower level of concern when it comes to the mask wearing. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops in the weeks ahead. Uh, it seems like there's a much stronger consensus now that wearing masks really can help stop the spread of the virus, maybe than there was a couple months ago. So as more and more information about that gets out there, we'll see uh, if what you and I see on the streets in terms of uh, people wearing masks cut, sort of comes into more alignment with what we're seeing in the polls where everybody says it's important, even though we don't seem to see so many people wearing them. You also broke uh, down by 18 to 45, 46 to 65, and 65 and older. Was there a significant difference in the, the opinions of masks with those different age groups, or was it fairly consistent? Well, certainly uh, across all of those lines, people thought that wearing a mask was uh, important, but older voters definitely saw the greatest importance. 90% of seniors said that it was important to wear a mask, and 74% of seniors said it was very important. And when you look at the younger groups of voters, only about 60% of voters said it was very important compared to 74% for the seniors. Definitely part of the most recent increase in cases uh, with the coronavirus is young people uh, sort of acting like they're indestructible. The, the sort of earlier cases were very disproportionately older people. Now we're seeing a lot more younger people get it because they're having large social gatherings, they're going to the beach, that sort of thing. One of the most interesting recent developments with the virus is that the governors of both West Virginia and Kentucky have asked their residents to stop going to Myrtle Beach because there's a, a large number of West Virginians and Kentuckians going to Myrtle Beach and hanging out at big parties and bringing the virus back to their home states. And of course, that's something that younger people are a lot more likely to be engaged in than older people. So uh, definitely everybody thinks wearing a mask is important, but older people are being more responsible about it. Question number 15 on your poll is, uh, I think really gets to the heart of a lot of issues. And it basically, you said North Carolina has recently begun lifting restrictions, which allows retail stores and other in-person shopping to take place. Which statement do you agree with the most? The state should go ahead and lift all restrictions on businesses, schools, and restaurants. Another option would be the state should continue to move slowly and lift restrictions in stages in order to protect vulnerable populations. Or the third option was it's too soon to lift any restrictions and doing so could cause a spike in infections. Uh, the results are uh, very interesting. Yes, people want the middle ground approach. And we really saw that on a lot of issues that we asked about in this poll. Uh, so, on this, uh, on this particular question, 25% said lift all restrictions, 15% said we shouldn't be reopening anything, but 56% said, you know, let's open some stuff, but let's be careful about it and do it stage by stage. And we also asked a question about reopening restaurants, and the numbers were almost identical. 25% said let everyone in the restaurants, 19% said don't let anyone in the restaurants, and 55% of very clear majority said, let's have partial capacity with social distancing guidelines. So we sort of find across the board on these issues that 
North Carolinians aren't really on either extreme. They're not on the open everything uh, frame of mind, but they're also not on the we need to keep everything closed frame of mind. And I think that the governor's leadership has pretty much been in alignment with where the public is on this kind of stuff. He said that we need to work toward reopening, but we need to do so at a safe pace that keeps everything from blowing back up again. And I think that uh, we see that there's a fair amount of cohesion between how the governor is sort of handling these issues and how voters in the state would like to see them being handled. One of the uh, questions I wish you'd ask was uh, the enforcement of the mask. Uh, there is essentially, it's still voluntary. I, I mean, we're told it's mandatory, but the truth of the matter is, is so far there's been no penalty if one does not uh, react. I mean, on seatbelts, for example, you can get a ticket for not using your seatbelt. You can get a ticket for uh, speeding, uh, and that's what probably enforces those laws. But there's no uh, penalty if you choose not to wear your mask and you're in public. Um, what, how do you think that would have come out had you asked that question? <laughs> My guess is this is something where uh, voters probably don't want police going around ticketing people about this. It's something where I think... Uh, people would sort of hope that there'd be a communal sense of responsibility where people would do the right thing without that sort of enforcement being necessary. Uh, I think especially with a lot of the um, uh, stuff about police in the news lately that people would not want this to be a use of a lot of uh, police time and resources. But that's a good question. We'll, we'll think about getting that onto some future surveys. You also asked the question about gyms, bars, movie theaters, and concert venues, and those numbers came out just about the same as all the other uh, questions that you asked about what should be open. Uh, uh, one of the things that was interesting to me was on the question that you asked overall, only 3% were not sure. In other words, you had 97% uh, had an opinion. That's a little high, isn't it? Well, uh, I think that if ever there was an issue that everyone was affected by and would have an opinion about, this is probably it. You know, almost anything that we ask about in the poll, generally, it affects some people. It doesn't affect other people. You always have plenty of people who maybe haven't thought about it. Everyone's been having to think about how COVID affects their lives and how we're going to move forward from there. So I think that's an interesting uh, thing that you sort of picked up on, that everybody has an opinion about it. But I think it makes sense because it's about as all-encompassing an issue in our society as we have ever had and about as all-encompassing as we just about could ever have. Now, you also, of course, uh, can cross-reference your poll by, by gender. Was there a significant difference in the way women feel and men feel? I've definitely anecdotally uh, seen that women are a lot more uh, concerned about the virus and the various steps related to that than uh, men are. And we saw that in the poll results as well. Uh, for instance, on the question about fully reopening the state, 32% of men said the state should be fully reopened, but only 20% of women said the state should be fully reopened. On the question about wearing a mask, 71% of women said it was very important to wear a mask. Only 56% of men said it was very important to wear a mask. And just quickly on the question about reopening gyms and bars, 45% uh, of men said yes, reopen gyms and bars. Only 28% of women did. So across the board on those questions, you see women uh, taking the virus much more seriously and being a lot more cautious about the path forward than men are. 
Our guest is uh, Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling, and we'll be back with one final segment here on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling. A reminder that uh, a number of you are listening to the full-hour version of this program, but some are listening on the half-hour version. If you're listening to the half-hour version, which is carried on a number of stations, you can listen to the two segments that you missed by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and hear those two segments that you missed. Or if you'd like to share with a friend, you can do that. Or the third option is you might want to listen to the entire broadcast again. Um, Tom, uh, again, thank you so much for sharing this. This is a poll that you did about uh, seven or eight days ago, I guess. And so it's relatively uh, recent. And this is a changing environment. And and, uh, different circumstances can come up that uh, suddenly change a lot of things. But uh, uh, basically, the questions I think you've asked are going to come out just about the same. one of the, the things that I thought was interesting is it, it, you asked the question, in, in your opinion, over the last two weeks, have the coronavirus numbers in North Carolina gotten better or worse? And uh, that was interesting. Yeah, 60% say it's gotten worse. Only 10% say it's getting better. And I think objectively it is getting worse. But what's interesting about this is that at times you, for instance, seen President Trump uh, trying to claim that it's not getting worse, and he'll he'll say that it's getting better even when it's not. And what we see here is that his voters are not going along with that. Uh, only 10% actually do think that things are getting better. 60% say they're getting worse. And I think that that uh, sort of explains why voters are okay with not moving into phase three of reopening, not moving ahead with uh, reopening bars and restaurants and uh, excuse me, bars and uh, gyms and that kind of thing, is that people do see that it's getting worse and they don't want it to keep on getting worse. So they're willing to, uh, to, to continue on in phase two and wait to further reopen things until things have sort of stabilized a little bit more. One of the questions you ask is when it comes to the coronavirus academic uh, or pandemic in North Carolina, do you think the worst is yet to come? And of course, that could be broken into both health concerns and or 
economic concerns. Uh, uh, did you think about uh, how that might differ if you were to ask the question about economically is the worst over uh, or health is it worst over? I, I, you, hear, you notice what I'm, I'm trying to get to, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be interesting to break out separately. I do think at the end of the day, uh, the health and the economic are going to go together. Uh, if the coronavirus gets worse in terms of number of cases and deaths in North Carolina, it's not going to matter what is or is not open because people are not going to be going out to businesses and getting in public and stuff like that if the numbers really spiral out of control. We're trying to avoid being in a situation like New York was in uh, late March and early April, and I think that uh, they took locking down a lot more seriously than we ever have because they're uh, cases got so out of control. So even if stuff is open in that instance where so many people are getting corona, the businesses are still really going to struggle. On the other hand, if the corona can get contained, uh, then I think people will be more comfortable going out to businesses and sort of uh, helping the economy. So I think at the end of the day, those fates are pretty intertwined. Uh, I know that some businesses want to be able to be fully open, even if the virus is on the uh, in a growth stage, but I, I think at the end of the day, that's probably not going to work out very well. You know, I can think of hundreds of other questions I wish you could have asked, but you know, you have to limit your polls to the time that someone is willing to share with you. And, and uh, I know from some work that you've done for our organization, 25 questions is about as far as you can go. And <laughs> I, I can't see any of the questions on here that I wish you, you didn't ask. Uh, there are a number of others, but, uh, uh, how do you feel like uh, the results would have come out if you'd asked about opening K through 12 schools and colleges and universities? I think people would say that that needs to be waited for. Uh, I, I think basically the state is not ready to move beyond where we are right now. Uh, I think uh, given the big increase in cases that we saw in June, uh, that's going to have to get very much uh reduced in terms of having more cases before people are going to want to move forward with opening more things. So I think at least at this time that people would probably not want schools and colleges and universities reopened. Uh, and hopefully by the time we get to August, you know, we will be on a trajectory where uh, it seems like we have the virus under control and we can think about moving forward with some of those things. But uh, I think most people feel like for the moment, our focus really just needs to be on getting these cases back under control uh, before we end up with a real wide-scale public health crisis in the state. Well, you know, I, we, we discussed uh, where the uh, presidential candidate stood as far as the favorable or unfavorable opinion in the state of North Carolina. We talked about that with the gubernatorial race uh, and also the Senate race. And uh, just very briefly, uh, uh, you have uh, Trump uh, uh, favorable at 45%, uh, favorable for Joe Biden at 40%. Uh, and uh, if the candidates for president this fall were Biden and Donald Trump, 48% at this point in time said they would vote for, for Biden. And uh, then you asked the same question on, on the gubernatorial race, and that turned out to be uh, Roy Cooper ahead. And then the race for United States Senate, you've got Cal Cunningham ahead. But as you pointed out, uh, that uh, race will probably tighten a great deal. Any other comments on those three races as we sort of recap uh, some of the things you just said earlier? 
<laughs> I think the big picture is just that North Carolina is a toss-up for both the presidential race and the Senate race. And we're going to be one of very few states in the country this year where that is the case. Uh, the only other state I can really think of that I feel like is a toss-up for both president and Senate is Georgia. Uh, and that actually, the fact that North Carolina and Georgia would be two of the most competitive states in the election this fall, I think speaks to the way that at least some parts of the South are really changing. Both North Carolina and Georgia have a huge generational divide in their electorate, where younger voters are a lot more likely to vote Democratic, older voters are a lot more likely to vote Republican, uh, but of course, there's more and more of those younger voters and fewer and fewer of those older voters over time. So that trend is sort of making things competitive. And both states are also getting a lot more racially diverse as they grow. Uh, the share of the electorate in places like North Carolina and Georgia that's white versus non-white uh, is getting much more growing towards the non-white side of the equation over the last few decades. And white voters in those states vote Republican by 30 or 40 points, but non-white voters in those states vote Democratic by 60 or 70 points. So that diversity trend makes a big difference. And then the other piece is just that there's so many people moving to North Carolina and Georgia from out of state. And the people who move to North Carolina and Georgia from the Northeast or California or wherever it may be are a lot more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. So between in-migration, the generational divide, and the increasing diversity of those states, we have a situation now where North Carolina and Georgia never would have been viewed as the most important states in national politics a generation ago, uh, and now we're really moving up that list. Tom, uh, we th appreciate so much your sharing all this information with us. It's fascinating, and we look forward to having you back again when you do another poll and sharing that information with us again. Our program has been produced with uh, the help of uh, Jason Kong, and he will have another guest for us on the same group of stations again next week at the same time. So we will look forward to having you join us at that time. Again, uh, you can listen to the broadcast by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. Till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.